This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. Mama, where's my pa? That's the sound heard round the town during the 1884 presidential campaign when Grover Cleveland was involved in one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest, sex scandal in presidential election history. We'll get waist deep in the mock soon enough, but first, a word from our sponsor. Do you like yourself a president? Because it turns out that The Great Courses has a set of lectures just for you. If you do, or if you don't like presidents, you can find your affection for them in The Great Presidents, which is one of the courses from The Great Courses. It studies 12 of our country's greatest presidents, from Washington to Lincoln to FDR. And The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Order The Great Presidents or any of their eight best-selling courses at up to 80% off the original price. So don't delay. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. It's October 1884, and we're in Buffalo, New York, standing outside the vast house of widow Julia Carey. The street lamps are lit, and we can see the house's mansard roof with pointed arch dormers, which seem to stretch into the rain clouds. It is fancy. The doors are so ornate, it said it required three men to carry just one of them. Beneath the widow Carey's 18-foot ceilings is New York Governor Grover Cleveland, who's the Democratic presidential nominee, and he's piloting his 280-pound frame through the conversational witticisms of some of the town's leading lights. Miss Carey is a woman the papers describe as a lady of the highest social station and of the most rigid code of social and moral ethics. And this is the point. If it were true what the Republicans were saying about the Democratic nominee Cleveland's debased moral character, a lady of Julia Carey's significance, stature, and fixed position would not besplatter her drawing room with his filth. Cleveland, now 50 years old, impregnated a woman, Maria Halpin, 10 years ago, or as the Chicago Daily Tribune put it, when he was a man of 40 lusty summers. He has admitted as much and admitted that he's been supporting the child since its birth. His supporters say that this is the honorable thing and that he has dealt with the detour of his past in the best possible way. Of course, the preachers and the Republicans have reacted to this news in horror. Cleveland has been called a rake, a libertine, father of a bastard, a gross and licentious man, a moral leper, a man stained with disgusting infamy, worse in moral quality than a pickpocket, a sneak thief or a Cherry Street debauchee, a wretch 
unworthy of respect or confidence. So, having all of that dumped on his head with just a month ago before the election, the governor of New York, Cleveland, has returned to his hometown, Buffalo, on a kind of redemption tour. He hasn't campaigned much in the election of 1884. His Republican opponent, James G. Blaine, has clocked 400 campaign appearances. But Cleveland doesn't campaign. He's behind his desk, tending to his duties. He's a kind of head down, always focused on work kind of fellow. But he's returned to Buffalo because he's trying to knock back these claims about his action pants. And he needs to be seen in the company of polite society and bask in the glow of his hometown acclaim. So when he arrives in Buffalo, the procession goes all the way down Michigan Street, blocks all the other side streets. One paper described it as one continuous ovation. Men and women stood, 15,000 of them, by one paper's reports, in the pouring rain to hear him speak at his hotel. He was greeted with a huge banner that read, A Man of Destiny. What he did not hear in the crowd was that call that had been haunting him from Republican rallies all around the country since the late summer. Ma, ma, where's my pa? The election of 1884 is considered one of the nastiest in history. As Henry Adams, the author of the novel Democracy, wrote to a friend, We are all swearing at each other like demons. There are some interesting political currents, which we'll busy ourselves with in another episode of Whistle Stop. But for the moment, we're just going to simply address the matter of Cleveland's amorous sorties into the drawing rooms of single women and the principal role they took in this campaign. In the election of 1802, Thomas Jefferson was accused of having fathered a child with his slave, which turned out to be true. Andrew Jackson may have married his wife before she was divorced from her previous husband. But in the election of 1884, that's the first time that the sex bomb really explodes in a presidential campaign. To step back slightly, we have to talk about politics a tiny bit, if for no other reason than it sets our narrative in motion. So the Republican Party has been in power since the Civil War. The Democratic Party has been out of power. The challenge for Democrats is they faced a very skilled and popular politician in James G. Blaine. He was nominated with incredible fanfare. One account said whole delegations mounted their chairs to cheer And that was according to the New York Tribune. Blaine was like a perfect politician, incredibly smooth. Everyone loved him. And we'll have great fun with him in a future episode. The Democrats, to get their opening, had to pick a candidate who could appeal, though, to the Republican liberals. They were the ones not happy with Blaine and the direction the Republican Party was going in. Blaine and his running mate had both been accused of being corrupt and having an arrangement with the railroad interests, which they used to line their pockets. As one observer noted at the Republican convention, these Republican liberals applauded with the tips of their fingers held immediately in front of their noses. One of these independent Republicans, mugwumps, as they were called, charged that Blaine, quote, wallowed in spoils like a rhinoceros in an African pool. Now, these Republicans are important because of how the vote will split, but also they will play a key role in being character witnesses for Cleveland, because if they can say Cleveland is not a moral debauch, then since they're nominally members of the other party, that helps him. Remember, all the newspapers are split between Republicans and Democrats, though there are some independent Republican papers. So now to to Grover Cleveland, the great Democratic hope. If the Democrats were to break the lock, it was going to be by exploiting these tensions in the Republican Party, and they had to do it in New York. New York was the crucial state 
in those elections, the way sort of Ohio and Florida are today. You had to win it. And Cleveland was the man to do it because before this news broke about his private lustings on the hustings, he was considered the kind of guy you'd want to bring home to mother. He had been sheriff of Buffalo, governor of New York, and he earned this reputation for honesty. When the New York World Herald supported his nomination, it wrote that it did so for four reasons. One, he is an honest man. Two, he is an honest man. Three, he is an honest man. Four, he is an honest man. Cleveland's nickname was Grover the Good, and the New York Times, a Republican paper, rattled the teacups a little when it endorsed Cleveland, saying that he was a courageous man whose absolute integrity has never been questioned. Cleveland was such a sterling, honest fellow in his public behavior that he ran into trouble with the political machine on the Democratic side because he was a reformer and he was an anti-corruption do-gooder, which often put him at odds with the backroom dealers in his own party. And so those Tammany Hall men didn't want Cleveland to be the party nominee. So they were spreading rumors through the Democratic convention in the summer of 1884. And those rumors were about this womanizing. The Chicago Tribune wrote the hotels were filled with gossip, but that did not seem to disturb the Democrats much. One of the wags making trouble trying to stir up conversation about this affair said that it's true that while Cleveland was sheriff in Buffalo, he had hanged people, but that, in fact, he had brought more people into the world than he had taken out of it. Remember, at this point, Cleveland is actually not married. But the story never really caught fire, despite the the Tammany Hall men trying to get Cleveland knocked off the ballot. So Cleveland wins the nomination. But not long after he won the nomination, the scandal breaks wide open. As one Democratic newspaper described it, the first detailed publication of the alleged facts was made in a poverty-stricken and obscure Buffalo newspaper on July 20. The newspaper was the Buffalo Evening Telegraph. The story was entitled A Terrible Tale, and it was the result of agitations by the Reverend George H. Ball of the Hudson Street Baptist Church. The story in its particulars was true. Cleveland had claimed paternity of a child born out of wedlock to the widow Maria Halpin. In one paper, the boy is referred to as a nullius filius, which is the son of a nobody. But if those were the facts everybody agreed on, the story stretched like taffy as various forces took hold of it for their purposes. The Reverend Ball and other clergy saw this as an opportunity to froth up the public and inveigh against licentiousness in all its forms and generally promote themselves as the stalwarts against fornication and moral lapse. The local Democratic Party bosses, those Tammany folks, angry at Cleveland's do-goodism, saw it as an opportunity to destroy him. And, of course, then you had conservative papers and Republicans who saw it as a chance to get on the high horse and offer forth their purplest prose, which they did. Here is an account from the St. Louis Globe Democrat. He, speaking of Cleveland, is charged with crafty, cruel lust in the case of Maria Halpin. He is circumstantially portrayed as a lecher, whose assaults upon chastity are only varied by shameful lewdness with the already polluted. The Chicago Daily Tribune wrote, if true, the story shows him to be unworthy of an honorable place in society. It shows him to be utterly wanting in moral sentiment and manly instinct. More than that, it makes about a villain unfit to associate with honorable men or pure-minded women. But it wasn't just that Cleveland had fathered a son. The papers charged that he had to hush it up by having 
this woman, Maria Halpin, institutionalized and the son put in an orphanage. Once the dam broke, stories started to appear all over the place about Cleveland. This man, once considered pure, he was like the Bigfoot of body houses. He was appearing everywhere, his pants down, chasing after women. One newspaper reported that Judge James Sheldon of the Superior Court reported that he had direct proof of Governor Cleveland's recent attempt to seduce a young lady of excellent character, but she, becoming aware of his intent, repelled him so spiritedly that he beat a hasty retreat. Another story emerged about Cleveland and a lawyer in a terrible fight over a lewd woman. Had this news arrived before the Democratic nomination, it probably would have prevented Cleveland from getting that nomination. The newspapers were talking about this, but since this was the first time this stuff had really broken out into the open, there was a lot of sort of confusion and hand-wringing. The Chicago Daily Tribune wrote that the details of the affair are unfit for publication in the columns of the paper that goes into the homes of respectable people. The St. Louis Globe Democrat wrote, and this is a conservative paper where actually Pat Buchanan would later launch his career, wrote that the press of the country should not cease from agitating the arraignment of Governor Cleveland's moral character until he resigns or is withdrawn from the Democratic presidential nominee. It is the province of the Democratic press particularly to bring this scandal to a head. All Americans are disgraced so long as the vile story remains uncontradicted and Cleveland a presidential candidate. The virtue of our woman is the basis of the family, and the family is the cornerstone of the state. We dare not present an inebriate as the mold of American reform, the example to our youth and the candidate for the most exalted post within the gift of our galaxy of proud commonwealths. Finally, the New York Sun, a Democratic paper, said, We do not believe the American people will knowingly elect to the presidency a course debauchee who would bring his harlots with him to Washington and hire lodgings for them convenient to the White House. The cartoonists, much like our late night comedians today, were the ones who had the most fun. And the famous cartoon of this period was from The Judge, and it showed a weeping Maria Halpin holding a crying baby, and the baby was howling, I want my pa! Next to them was a vast and orotund Grover Cleveland, whose overcoat had a label sewn on like Paddington Bear that said Grover the Good. And he was so undone by the crying baby that his top hat had flown off. The cartoon was entitled Another Voice for Cleveland. And this cartoon is what launched that song, the Ma Ma Where's My Pa. This set off a huge race between the two sides, the Republicans and Democrats, these papers to try to validate the scandal. The story is that Cleveland, when asked about what to do about these reports, simply said, tell the truth. In fact, the story then was promulgated that when uh, he was showed material that had been dug up on Blaine, Cleveland took it, tore it into bits, threw the pieces into the fire, and he said, the other side can have a monopoly on all the dirt in this campaign. That didn't stop the newspapers and Cleveland's friends from launching these investigations, and there were a bunch of them. There were at least three, maybe five, of friends and foes of life sending investigators to Buffalo, claiming various levels of purity for their investigation. And they were all trying to find examples of either Cleveland's bad behavior or something that would exonerate him. In the end, the Cleveland investigators concluded, not surprisingly, that, quote, there was no seduction, no adultery, no breach of promise, no obligation of marriage. The campaign issued one of these reports in a pamphlet that it passed around called The Facts and Evidence Concerning the Private Life of Grover Cleveland. Here's how the Democrats described the scandal in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 
It is admitted by Governor Cleveland's friends that 12 years ago, he formed an irregular connection with the widow, with two children, the eldest 14 years old, that she was a person of intemperate habits and that the paternity of the child born subsequently was doubtful. But he, Cleveland, accepted it and made provision for the child that after suffering much annoyance from her, one of the natural and common penalties of such errors, and after satisfying her brother-in-law, who appeared on the scene as her protector, that he had behaved fairly towards her, that he laid the whole matter before a lawyer of high standing in Buffalo, who advised him to leave it to him, and thereafter took charge of it. The story continues that the lawyer, now taking care of Ms. Halpin and the son, went to uh, look in on her, or in fact sent a detective to look in on her, and the report concludes, in one of the detective's visits, he found the mother suffering from delirium tremens and threatening to kill the child, which lay on the floor. He carried her off then to the inebriate asylum for treatment, and she stayed there until she was cured. So in the Democratic account of this, she is a harlot, He takes credit for the baby because she's been sleeping with lots of his male married friends and he saves their honor by saying the child is his. And then Miss Halpin, because she's not only a harlot, she's also a drunk who's endangering the child. And so Cleveland has the child put in an orphanage to save the child from his drunken mother. So the only thing she didn't do is rob a bank. So, of course, the Republican papers didn't buy this, didn't take this sitting down. The Chicago Daily Tribune wrote that none of these facts were exonerating points. And it wrote, it is perhaps worthy of note that Grover Cleveland is the only authority cited by General King in the fascinating narrative of his remarkable discoveries. King was one of the investigators going back to Buffalo to see if this story was true. The paper also wrote, He, meaning King, does not let us know who told him that Governor Cleveland is so choice in his associations that he and two dear friends at the same time held relations with a woman which left the paternity of her children doubtful. Democratic newspapers, in addition to publishing the support of Cleveland on the facts, also were searching around for character witnesses. Miss Hathaway, an elderly resident of Buffalo, New York, wrote, our family have lived as neighbors to the Cleveland family and have been intimately acquainted with Grover Cleveland since before the time of his election as sheriff, a more honorable and pure man in his private life I have never seen. And that's what Cleveland was doing at Widow Carey's house. He was there to have locals attest to his shining character. The Milwaukee Sentinel covered it and said, a lady gave him a dinner party during his visit with the purpose of placing his social standing beyond question. And the fact of the dinner party was telegraphed all over the country by his managers. But since the Milwaukee Sentinel was a Republican paper, it wasn't going to take these facts purely as they were presented. So it also said, it is reported on what seems to be unimpeachable authority that at the dinner party given by Miss Carey in Buffalo for Governor Cleveland, there were 14 invited guests and 11 sent their regrets. Comment is unnecessary. But then, of course, the paper goes on to comment and says, dinner invitations to meet the governor of the state of New York and the candidate of a great party for the presidency of the United States are not declined unless with good reason. So not even the smallest fact can go undisputed. And then at this point, another counter scandal arrives, despite what Cleveland said about not wanting to dig up dirt, a counter scandal arrives about Blaine saying that he betrayed the girl whom he had married. This is in the Indianapolis Sentinel. And then only married her at the muzzle of a shotgun. 
if after despoiling her, he was too craven to refuse her legal redress, giving legitimacy to her child until a loaded shotgun stimulated his conscience, then there is not a blot on his character more foul. So there is this counterattack on Blaine saying that he slept with his wife before he married her. And the Republican papers stand up for Mrs. Blaine, saying there is unanimity of opinion that Mrs. Blaine has lived since her marriage a blameless Christian life and that she has been a true and noble wife and mother. All of this pressure that Democrats are putting on Blaine, the stories they're putting out about Cleveland's character and picking apart Maria Halpin's account, allow Cleveland to beat back the story. And his sort of ace in the hole, his big slugger on his side, is the famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher, who's the pastor of Plymouth Church, and he looks through these investigations and declares very uprightly at a rally in Manhattan that he is going to support Cleveland despite all these terrible claims. And Beecher speaks, and it is printed all throughout the papers. In all the history of politics, we don't believe that lies so cruel, so base, so malign have ever been set in motion. The air is murky with stories of Mr. Cleveland's private life. We find that there are circulated in many cases by rash and credulous clergymen. They could not go to Cleveland with honest inquiry, so they opened their ears to the harlot and the drunkard. I will not see a man followed by hounds, serpents, or venomous stinging insects, and not, if I believe him innocent, stand with him and for him against all comers. But then, then Beecher decided to add a little too much to the soup, because he then said if every man in New York tonight who'd broken the Seventh Commandment voted for Cleveland, he'd win by 200,000 votes. Mark Twain, watching the whole business, concluded, The present campaign is too delicious for anything. To see grown men, apparently in their right minds, seriously arguing against a bachelor's fitness for president because he has had private intercourse with a consenting widow. These grown men know what the bachelor's other alternative was, and tacitly they seem to prefer that to the widow. Isn't human nature the most consummate sham and lie that was ever invented? So Cleveland looks like he's on his way to winning the presidency, or at least knocking back this story so that he can run against Blaine as a man in the pocket of the railroad interests. And Blaine is fending off his own scandals about what he's done in office. But then, as it looked like the story was dying down, Maria Halpin comes on stage. There has been a sort of keystone cops chasing after her, as one of the newspapers in New Rochelle reported it. Thursday afternoon, the town was full of strangers, politicians, detectives, and police officers, and plain clothes. The Republicans had sent people to find help and to get her to put her story on the record. Democrats were trying to find her, and in fact, according to one account, did find her, put her into a disguise, and put her on a train towards New York, all because a Democrat had been operating the telegraph machine and saw a note come in from Republicans in New York to their friends in New Rochelle that they had a fix on her location. The Democrats stole the telegraph, found Halpin, dressed her up, sent her into New York where she was spirited away. But suddenly, in what was probably the first October surprise in political history, she appears in the newspapers, of course in the Republican newspapers, saying that she feels like she has to break her silence because Henry Ward Beecher and others have said that she was a harlot, that Cleveland was the honorable man who had saved her, and that she couldn't let this stand, that her family was being undone and its reputation being undone by these stories. 
So in the newspaper accounts, she is described as a quiet, decorous, unobtrusive woman. And this is what she writes in her first account of what really happened. I was employed at Flint and Kent. That's a dry goods store. And she was the head of the cloak department. When Grover Cleveland persistently sought and finally made my acquaintance. I was not as stout as I look now, being tall and slender, and it is a wonder that I endured all I suffered in the years from 1870 to 1877. My child, Oscar Folsom Cleveland, was born September 14, 1874. Grover Cleveland is his father, and to say that any other man is responsible for his birth is infamous. It does not seem possible, after all I've suffered for Grover Cleveland and my boy's sake, that the attempt will be made to further blacken me in the eyes of the world. No one knows the extent of my sufferings. After my child was taken from me, I begged Cleveland on my knees to let me have sight of my baby. He was immovable. I found where the boy was, and one day I rushed in upon his keeper, snatched him up, and ran away before they could stop me. My sufferings subsequently, my fruitless efforts to have him... Cleveland, fulfill his promise of marriage, his neglect of myself and child, my abduction and violent treatment by his hired tools are truthfully but only partially told in the Buffalo Telegraph. It would be impossible to cover events that made up those years of shame, suffering, and degradation forced upon me by Grover Cleveland. So, She's saying she didn't make it up. And then when the newspaper asked her if she was going to offer a statement exonerating Cleveland, because that's what the Democratic papers had been saying, that she was ready to come forth with a statement clearing him entirely. She said in response to that idea, make me make a statement exonerating Grover Cleveland. Never. I would rather put a bullet through my heart. The newspapers publishing this account concluded by saying Cleveland might enjoy honors and wealth while on his account she was exiled from kindred and friends, patiently waiting death and her misery. But Halpin then issues a second description of the night in question and basically describes a rape. This is what she says. On my way to call upon an acquaintance by the name of Mrs. Johnson, at the Tiff House in Buffalo, I met Grover Cleveland, whose acquaintance I had formed months previous to that time. Cleveland asked me to go with him to take dinner, which invitation I declined because of my prior engagement, but by persistent requests and urging, he induced me to accompany him to the restaurant of Ocean House where we dined. After dinner, he accompanied me to my rooms at Randall's boarding house on Swan Street, as he had quite frequently done from other times, and where my son lived with me. While in my rooms, he accomplished my ruin by the use of force and violence and without my consent. After he accomplished his purpose, he told me that he was determined to ruin me if it cost him $10,000. After this, there was still no mercy for Maria Halpin. The golden era from Lincoln, New Mexico, a paper... They claim to be independent, but seems to be of democratic leaning, said the woman in this case can claim no sympathy from the public since, in violation of all sense of decency, she has prowled herself about the affair with a looseness of tongue. This fully justifies the allegation that before she met Mr. Cleveland, she had been quite liberal with her favors. Finally, the Democratic paper said the whole thing was just made up and Halpin hadn't actually written any of that. And so we go into the election with a sort of fuzzying up of the story. As it came into election day, this is the way various people were framing the choice. Lord James Bryce wrote that the campaign became a contest over the copulative habits of one and the prevaricative habits of the other. Or as one mugwump said in explaining why he was supporting Cleveland over Blaine, we are told that Mr. Blaine has been delinquent in office but blameless in private life. 
while Mr. Cleveland has been a model of official integrity but culpable in his personal relations. We should therefore elect Mr. Cleveland to the public office, which he is so well qualified to fill, and remand Mr. Blaine to the private station to which he is admirably fitted to adorn. So this is in fact what the country did. Grover Cleveland won in a squeaker, at which point the Democrats put forward an addendum to the chant that had been so often sung at Republican rallies. Ma, ma, where's my pa? Republicans chanted, to which Democrats now added, gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember, The Great Presidents and any of their eight other best-selling courses at 80% off. That's at thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Bolo, who cut this episode down from its original length of a fortnight into a podcast. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is of such sterling character that he could never cause us to embrace reports that he hid in the bushes outside the widow Halpin's house in order to determine once and for all whether she had returned to spending her afternoons with the bottle. I'll be back next week with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, we'll talk about why we should treat ourselves and why we should avoid the stumbling block of the fake self-actualization loophole. You'll find Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. Panoply.fm.